Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, as you have heard, we're going to be in Genesis. So chapter 3 is where we're going to pick up. As you're turning there, I want to just thank you again for always the kind welcome, the, the, the sweet remarks, the notes of prayer, the, the um, kind words, the hugs, all of it. I am, I am thankful to be here with you, um, thankful to be counted as one of your friends. That's a, that's a, that's a sweet thing, although David... That song we just sang that the choir sang, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery, I think there is a handful of songs that I cannot get through without crying, and that's one of them. Um, I love that song. It's a hard song to sing sitting down, I'll tell you that, because, uh, man, it was, it, was, it was tricky, but what a sweet, sweet song, and, and how fitting for the text that we're going to be looking at today. I am thankful to be here, thankful to Isaac for inviting me, and thankful to you folks for your kindness. Um, now five years worth of kindness. So thank you, thank you so much. So as I mentioned, we're, we are continuing our study in Genesis. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 3. We're going to pick up where Isaac left off a, co- left off a couple of weeks ago in uh, in verse 14, and we're going to go we're going to do our best to get to the end of the chapter. I am not going to make any promises because there's a, there's a lot to cover and a lot that we need to spend some time looking at. So we'll do our best. Uh, let's read our text, when we'll pray, and then we'll jump in. So Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 14 and reading to the end of the chapter in verse 24. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east end of the garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are thankful to you for another opportunity to sit with open Bibles and read your word. Think through your word and have your word, we pray, change us. Lord, as we read this text and we understand the gravity of what has just happened and we understand what is now here as sin has entered the world, Lord, even now as we read through the judgment and we read through the expulsion from the garden and we read through the cursings that we are going to look at this morning, Lord, our prayer is that you show us Christ. Lord, he is all over this text and I pray now that you would guard my mouth from evil, that you would open our eyes to see wondrous things in here and that when we're finished, we will be thankful to you for your grace for your mercy, for your plan of salvation that cost your son his life. Lord, we ask that your spirit be our teacher as we continue on. 
In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, two weeks ago, I think, Isaac covered the first part of the chapter. And it's happened. Sin is here. Some commentators and theologians would say that to understand the rest of Scripture, you have to understand Genesis 3. No pressure, right? No pressure. (laughs) And I think that's true. I think in this chapter, we see clearly what our problem is. We see clearly why our relationship with God has been severed and needs to be reconciled. We see those things. In, In just three chapters, we've seen the creation of everything, including Adam and Eve, made in the image of God himself, placed in a perfect garden with direction to tend the garden, to care for the garden, to work the garden. Their relationship with each other is perfect. Perfect marriage. The end of chapter 2 shows us that. Their relationship with their creator, also perfect. They walk together every day in the cool of the evening. What do they talk about? What does he tell them? What do they ask him? We're not told, but what a sweet, sweet relationship. And there's only one prohibition, only one thing that God's told them. In the center of the garden, there are two trees. One of them is a tree of knowledge of good and evil. Do not eat it. You can eat of everything else. You can have everything else. Do not eat of that tree. And as Isaac covered a couple of weeks ago, After an encounter with a snake, Eve gave in to her temptation, gave in to her lust of the eyes, and ate. That prohibition proved to be too much for the first man and woman. As Paul tells us later in Romans, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they eat. And immediately, they feel shame. Their eyes are open. They know they're naked. They know... Something is different, and it's not a good different. Something is wrong. They worked to cover their shame. Poor effort, but still they recognize it and try to cover it. We see for the first time that they're afraid of something. They have a standing appointment with the Creator every single day. Time's coming. They're scared. We got to hide. We can't let him see us like this. We've, we've got to get away like they think that's going to work. But God in his grace shows up as appointed and calls out to them, where are you? Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten? And as Isaac mentioned, he doesn't ask these things to get knowledge. He doesn't ask these things because he doesn't know the answer. He asks them to make a point, to teach something. To show us something. Promptly, Adam blames Eve, right? God looks at Eve, it was the serpent. He tempted me. He deceived me, and I ate. Today, we take a look immediately after that at what comes next. And and one thing I want you to keep in mind as we're reading through our text today, a few things, but one in particular, this is Romans chapter 5. I want, I want you to, to keep this in mind as we think through the fall. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 14. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Keep that in mind. Sin has entered, and everything is turned on its head. Creation, relationships are damaged. Suffering now has entered the world. We've talked about, or we will talk about in a few minutes, pain entering the world. We've already seen fear has entered the world. Shame has entered the world. And spiritual death. Physical death. Perfect bodies now will die. 
because they're no longer perfect. They're tainted by sin. They will die. They will decay. They will go back to the dust from which they were originally made. All of those things we'll see today. But through all of that, there's constant and consistent evidences of grace. God in his loving kindness does not give up on the first, the first people. God loves his creation and works on their behalf. So let's look at our text. We'll walk through these verses and see if we can see Christ in them. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, this is right after Eve said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. God immediately turns his attention and speaks to the serpent. Because you have done this, so he's given him, here's the reason what's coming is coming, because you have done this, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. Now, at the beginning of the chapter, the serpent is set apart. Moses explains to us as we're reading this and reading this account of what happened to Adam and Eve, and he introduces the serpent, he says the serpent was more crafty. Verse 1 serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God has made. So the serpent was set apart. Now he's set apart again by God. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. You are more crafty now. You're more cursed because you have done this. So as a judgment for the temptation of, of Eve, the serpent is noted here as, On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat. All the days of your life. Now, some say, well, snake must have had legs before this. Not necessarily. The text doesn't point us to that. It's entirely possible that the creation and the snake's condition now becomes part of its humiliation as part of that fall. But he says, on your belly you shall go. And thus you shall eat all the days of your life. Now there's a couple of things we can see here. One, that last phrase, all the days of your life. What does that mean? It means he's finite. That means there will be a day when he's lived his last day. We see the same phrase come when God is pronouncing judgment to Adam. But now as he's talking to Satan, even just something that, that we could read in passing, we can see there's an expiration date. On the serpent. We're going to see some more about that as we move along. But on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat. These are things that talk about humiliation. These are things that Moses uses the same kind of terminology later in, um, in Numbers. Nope, I'm sorry. That's something else. Moses does use it later, not in Numbers. And then elsewhere in Scripture, the history writings, the prophets, when they talk about Enemies of Israel being defeated and humiliated. This is the kind of language they use. Licking dust, eating dust, crawling on their belly. That's what they point to. Also, it, it points us forward. We're going to see it in chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 19, when God is speaking to Adam and says, you're going to be back to dust, referencing his physical death that's coming and the decay of his body back to what he was created from. And in this, it talks about dust you shall eat. Death will be always on Satan's tongue. He will eat it. He will see it. It will be right in front of his face. The, the death sentence echoes from Adam back to the serpent. He'll be humiliated. He'll be tasting death for however many days he has left. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, what does enmity mean? We don't talk like that very often. This is the word Moses uses in Numbers. <laughs> to speak of nations at war have enmity between one another. So that's something that we can, we can think through. And this curse, I will put enmity between you and the woman... We can see this, right? Isaac made reference to calling somebody to bring the hoe when you see a snake, right? That's how we think of snakes. Now, there's always somebody, well, snakes are great. They are, but 
they're great in your yard, okay? <laughs> they're great over there, right? I, I, I understand that they serve their purpose, but I don't want to be near one. In fact, we moved into our house in 2016, and I think it was the very next summer. So 2017, Noah would have been about eight. Abby would have been about 11, maybe 10. And I was mowing the grass, almost finished. Something caught my eye, and it was a snake in the yard. Unbeknownst to me, I had run over it with a lawnmower. I never saw it. And he was knotted up and kind of balled up, kind of at the edge of the woods. But I kind of rode by and looked over, belly up. I thought, well, that's the end of him. So I finished mowing, finished weed eating, blew off the driveway, and then I thought, we'll have nature time. Let me go get Abby and Noah. They were outside playing. Somehow I hadn't found this snake yet. So I went and got them. Hey, do you want to see something cool? Well, of course they did. So we walk back around, kind of poke at it with a stick. They look at it. Well, Noah, the brave eight-year-old, decides he's going to pick it up. So he grabs it by the tail. It's a maybe two feet long. It's not some monster, right? It's little. Black snake. So he's holding it up. It's laying there. We can see the fatal wound, right? He's done. And Noah says, I want to go show this to mom. And I said, son, that's a fantastic idea. Let's do that. So off we go, Abby leading the way, Noah with this snake out in front of him, around the corner of the house to find Mandy in the driveway. She's busy doing something in the edge of the garage, and Noah says, hey, Mom, look at this. Well, apparently, when you say, hey, Mom, look at this, that's magic words that make a snake come back to life. <laughs> and he starts jumping and flailing. Noah did an exceptional job not dropping the thing, because I'm sure it would have gone under something in the garage, and it would have been an ordeal to, to revive it. There was enmity between Mandy and that snake, okay? There was probably enmity between Mandy and Noah, and I know there was between Mandy and me, because I thought it was hilarious. So, but that is clear. That is something we can see. There, I will put enmity between you and the woman, that curse that is still going on, even in Reesville, North Carolina. There is enmity. But look how the subject changes as we go through this verse. I will put enmity between you and the woman. God is talking to the snake, you the snake, singular right now, and the woman, Eve, who you deceived. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Then it changes, and between your offspring and her offspring. This is looking forward, and this is plural. I will put enmity between you and her, all the generations after you, and all the generations after her. I will put enmity there also. And then it goes back again, and the subjects change. He, now who is he? He is a specific singular offspring of Eve, a person who is to be born later, but a person, a specific person, one person, he shall bruise your, now he's talking to the snake again, head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now there's not a ton of details here, right? And the only way we can see what we're about to see is because God and his kind providence has placed us on this planet, on this side of the cross. This is Christ. This is God's very beginning, very key verse to progressively revealing to his people what his plan of salvation is. Very specific. We'll talk about some of the, what that means, the progressive revelation. But think of this verse like this. We're in October, right? October 8th. Not yet, but in a couple of weeks, the leaves will be changing. They, some of them started to, but it'll be, it'll be peak time in a few weeks. And some of you, some of, some of us may decide to take a trip to the mountains to see this. Now, you can ride through the neighborhood and see one tree. We saw one yesterday, a, a red maple that had already turned fiery red. And my daughter said, isn't that tree pretty? Yes, it is. It is gorgeous. But what's more gorgeous is 
looking out over a mountain and seeing that times a million with every different color you can think of. So you may go up, you may ride the parkway, and, and what do you do? You pull over at an overlook, and you stand there and you see the hills and the mountains and the trees and the colors. This verse is like that overlook for the rest of Scripture. This verse is like that overlook for God's plan of salvation. There's not a ton of detail there because this is the very beginning of his revelation. But again, because we're on this side of the cross, because we know our New Testament and what has happened, we can see the big picture even in this small, small amount of detail. So what do we see from this overlook? Well, there's enmity now between the serpent and Eve. The first thing we see, though, is that God has a plan. God is not caught by surprise. God is not caught off guard. Well, great, now they ate. The one thing I told them not to do, now what? That's not how he handles it. He immediately begins, in his loving kindness, revealing the fact and the details that he has a plan. He's put enmity between the serpent and Eve, between their offspring. So Eve's offspring is humanity, right? The human race, people. We'll see in a few verses, she's named Eve because she's the mother of all living. So what about the offspring of the serpent, the offspring of Satan? Well, we can think through it in terms of the demons that fallen angels that were cast out of heaven with him and who serve his purposes. But think forward. You, you finished a couple of years ago, I think, uh, a study through the Gospel of John. And in John chapter 8, Jesus is talking with his foe, the Pharisees, right? And the Pharisees are saying, hey, look, you don't have anything on us. Our father is Abraham. Do you remember what Jesus told the Pharisees? You do the work of your father, the devil. So not just the demons, but, but those who work towards evil. That's who is referenced here as the offspring of the serpent. Those who work toward the, the purposes of evil. So specifically, then it gets to a specific offspring. This is pointing us to Christ. But at this point, all that we know is it's a person. Now, we mentioned a minute ago that, that this is the beginning of God's progressive revelation. You read the New Testament specifically through Hebrews, and it talks about, in some of Paul's letters, it talks about a mystery of the gospel, right? It talks about things seen through a veil. We, it talks about things now being made clear that once were not so clear. And we read through, starting here, we go through all the covenants, we go through the law, we go through the prophets, we go through the history, we go through the writings. All of it is pointing us to Christ. And it's much easier for us to see now on this side of the cross. But as those original hearers and readers were reading that, they just had bits and pieces. So now Adam and Eve are the only ones who know this. They've heard the serpent. There's somebody coming. Don't have a lot of information. Now, as this is progressive, you'll get in a few chapters to God calling Abram, changing his name to Abraham, go entering into a covenant with him, and he, he, he makes him promises as part of that covenant. And he says, two things, there's three things in the covenant, two of them are physical. I will give you a land, and I will give you descendants. And then there's one that's spiritual. And through your family, all the nations of the earth will be blessed which is another messianic prophecy, another piece of the puzzle. So we see here, God is going to use a man to accomplish his purposes. Later, we see that he's going to be Jewish. He's going to be from the line of Abraham and, and the nation that God sets apart for his plan. You get a little bit farther into the Old Testament and God enters into a covenant with David and promises him, there will be one who sits on your throne forever. So it's getting a little bit closer. It's coming into a little more focus. It's a little bit clearer. He's a Jew. He's from the tribe of Judah. In David's family, he's, a ro he's royalty. He's a king. We get into the New Testament. God approaches a young couple, betrothed to be married. Mary and Joseph will celebrate Christmas in a few months. If you've been to Lowe's and Walmart, they're already there. But... Thinking through all of that, 
There's one coming. Now it's specific. Mary's his mother. Born of a virgin. A few years later, John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. This is the one whom the prophet spoke of. This is the one whom all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 a promise was made. He's here. So we see that. We see this is the very beginning. This is the key to all of that. And then look at what's going to happen. The serpent will bruise his heel. We'll look at that first and then then come back. So there'll be a wounding, right? A, A wound on your heel, not pleasant, but not fatal usually. So there's a wounding here and you think through, what does that mean? Well, that's his beating. It's his mock trial. That's his crucifixion. That's his death. Did Satan think he won? I don't know. Did those who carried that out think they had solved the problem? Probably. But they didn't read Genesis. Or they didn't remember Genesis. Temporary setback. Part of the plan. Even from the beginning, part of the plan. God uses that. So there is is a wounding But because he is perfect, because he is sinless, death has no claim. And he gets up. He leaves the tomb alive, even today. And then what does it say? The offspring, he, that specific singular offspring, shall bruise your head. Now, some of your translations, I'm reading ESV, some of your translations may say crush. Perfectly fine translation. Same word about the heel injury and the head injury. Bruise, crush, The point is this, Satan has a finite lifespan, we've already heard that, and it's going to come to a violent end. This is a fatal wound. I want to read to you from Revelation, you don't have to turn there, but listen, this is in in Revelation 20, I'm going to read verse 2 and then jump down to verse 7, Revelation 22, and he, this is the angel that, that John saw coming down from heaven, and he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent pointing all the way back to Genesis 3, who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years, verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and false prophet were and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. Follow the imagery here. Cursed are you to your belly. Crawl around. Eat dust. The snake can strike the heel. Right? That's what he can reach. That's what he can get to. Painful, but temporary. Only to have his head stomped by the one he temporarily wounded. And we see that all the way through, that that's God's plan. We read it in in Revelation 20 that that's the ending of it. So keep that in mind as we read through this. We're going to point back to it as we go through the rest of our verses, but how kind is God? Even in this, even at the moment sin enters the world, he starts revealing, I have a plan. I have a people. I will save you. I will make a way. It will be my work and my doing and my business. And it's going to be through the offspring of the woman. Look at verse 16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, again, like the enmity between Mandy and that snake in our backyard a few years ago, The pain in childbearing is still something that we can readily, readily relate to. David mentioned, I have six children. I have been present for all six births. They are not pleasant experiences. And I didn't have to do anything. Right? So this is clear. We can see this. But some commentators take this a little bit farther. The physical pain, absolutely, it's there. And that's part of it. But some commentators take this kind of the next step. To adding the watching and the worrying about children throughout their lives. 
So think of this now. After Genesis 3, the children that are born are born with that sin nature. They are sinners. If you have children, you would say, amen, they are sinners. But mothers, how many times have you sat up at night because you had a son or a daughter who was maybe just a little bit out past curfew? You didn't know what had happened. You hadn't heard from them. Maybe you're praying for one who doesn't know the Lord. So it's not a long jump from the pain in childbearing to the pain of a lifetime spent worrying and praying about your kids. Not a long jump at all. So again, though, even in this, even in this suffering, even in this judgment, we see God's grace is clear. Isaac mentioned the other week, this is where you would think, you know, cover the kid's eyes, God's going to blow it all up. They took a bite, they disobeyed. The one thing he told them to do, it's over. Judgment, annihilation, all of that. And God doesn't do it. Even here, God refers to the fact that evil survived to bear children. He's already referred to the fact that through her offspring, everything's going to be restored eventually. So even in that grace, God shows the promise in verse 15 is connected here and to the earlier command before the fall to be fruitful and multiply. So before the fall, childbirth lay at the center of blessing and now even after the fall, childbirth will be the means by which God defeats Satan and makes things right. Blessing is restored. Grace is consistent. Grace is constant as we go through this. And then he carries on, your desire shall be contrary to your husband and he shall rule over you. So again, this speaks to that perfect relationship at the end of chapter 2 between man and wife is now fractured. Marriage is wonderful. But if you've been married more than about 20 minutes, you would agree with me to say marriage is hard. Marriage is work. Marriage is effort. Marriage is not coasting, right? And that's what we see here. Now, I'm reading ESV. Some of you may be reading ESV and say, he made that up in verse 16 because mine doesn't say that. And you would be right. And if you have a text of ESV that was prior to 2016, that's when they changed this, it will say, your desire shall be for your husband. So this has nothing to do with the message, but I just want to point this out because I, I, I had the question because a couple of the Bibles I was using during study, one's older, one's newer, and I went, wait a minute. This should be the same thing, rabbit trail. But, so the, the translators for the ESV are constantly referring back to what they've done. And they changed this in 2016 from shall be for your husband to shall be contrary to your husband. Because that Hebrew word can be translated either way. And that fits more in the context with what... Moses is teaching us here. So this perfect relationship that is at the end of chapter 2 is now contentious. We have difference of opinion. Well, I think we should do this with the kids. Well, I don't. I think that's a dumb idea, and I think we should do this. And it's, it's always going to be something, right? It's always going to be a back and forth. It's always going to be work and effort. And we have Adam and Eve to thank for that. Now look at verse 17 and we get to Adam. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Now, I didn't mention this a moment ago, but when we get to verse 14 and we're looking at the serpent and the judgment there. Genesis is a book of beginnings, right? Creation, the fall. Everything we know and see began here. Well, here's something else. Verse 14, we see for the very first time. Verse 17, we see it for the second time. The word curse. That hasn't happened yet. Cursed are you above all livestock. Cursed is the ground, Adam, because of you and because of your sin. 
Now note what he's cursing. He's cursing the serpent and he's cursing the ground. Those are the two things. God's speaking directly to Adam here. Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree, which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Moses tells us that Eve ate first, but then she gives it to Adam. And what does he tell us about Adam in that very moment? She eats, gives it to Adam, who was there with her. She didn't have to go find him. He wasn't out naming giraffes or whatever. He was with her. Before Eve was even created, God had commanded him specifically, do not eat of this. So when you read through this and we think through this, because you listen to the voice of your wife, Eve definitely was the first to eat. But Adam is not an innocent bystander in any of this, which is why God is right to pronounce judgment to him also. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. There's the pain that we see. First time that has shown up for Adam. Parallel to Eve. In pain you shall bring forth children. Parallel for Adam. In pain, the things that I have created you for will now be difficult. Will now be hard. Adam's work is now difficult and toilsome. Because... Sin has entered the world and all of creation. Plants, animals, even the ground, the earth itself is tainted because of the sin. Adam was created and placed in the garden and told to tend it, to care for it. Now, what did that look like before the fall? We don't know. We're not told what that means. But we can read and infer from this that it was quite a bit easier than what it is now. If you've planted a garden anytime recently... How many weeds do you plant? Zero. How many weeds come up? Too many to count. And you get them all out, and the next day, it looks like you hadn't even been there. And the tomatoes you do plant, you got to work like crazy to get them to do half of what you hope they can do. All of that points back to this curse, to this fall. Sweat and hard labor to cultivate the land will be the norm. And this will be Adam's call until he returns to the dust in which he works. By the sweat of your face, verse 19, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So this reference at the end of verse 19 is to Adam's physical death that is now sure to come, like the serpent. His days are also numbered. Once perfect bodies now wear out. Now have pains from no apparent source. They die and they decay. Perfect relationship with God and each other is broken. Perfect garden, briar patch. And the joyful tending of that garden is now Sweat, hard work, and toil that seems to be never-ending. All because Adam and Eve chose to place their self in the throne of their heart and their life. They saw it was good, they wanted it, so they did it. And here's the result. Verse 20, man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of of all living. Again, constant grace. God keeps pointing Moses and through Moses us back to the promise of verse 15. There is victory. There is victory coming and it's through the seed of the woman. It is coming. Eve is the mother of all living. Verse 21, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now, they made the fig leaves that wasn't going to work. So God made for them garments of skins and clothed them. Now, some see this as a parallel and a foreshadowing of the Mosaic Law. And again, not a very difficult leap to get there. Just like in the law, God loves and cares for his people and provides a way for their sin to be covered, though temporarily. 
So we see that here. We're not told specifically, but because this is made from animal skins, we assume that an animal had to die so that their skins could be used for the garments. God cares for and loves his disobedient creatures and makes a way to cover their shame. Now again, this is progressive. Kind of like verse 15. We get a little piece. We get a little glimpse. And because of the grace of us knowing the New Testament, we can see that this is pointing not just to Moses and the sacrifices contained in his law, but to the perfect sacrifice of Christ. Hebrews 9.22 tells us that Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness or remission, depending on your translation, of sin. Forgiving sin is a costly business. Innocent blood has to be spilled. Now, as you read through the law, all the sacrifices that are prescribed there to the children of Israel, once a year, they were to select a perfect spotless lamb that would be sacrificed, that the priest, the high priest, only once in a year could go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood from that sacrifice on the mercy seat, on the covering of the ark, so that the people of Israel would have their sins covered for a year. Now God, even in that, is teaching his people something. So as they read and study and look, they look back and see, God, you you have promised us that this is going to be taken care of. Why do we have to keep doing this over and over and over and over again? Why do we have to sacrifice every year? And it's because God is pointing them to something. One, he's pointing to the fact that you're going to be a sinner year after year after year after year. Because just like Adam and Eve, we love our sin. We do it because we want to do it. Eve ate, Adam ate, because they wanted to eat. They decided that they were going to do it. So God's pointing, you are sinners. Continually you sin year after year after year after year until you turn back to the dust. So God's showing them in that you cannot live up to the standard that I have set in my law. You don't need help. You need a Savior. You need somebody not to help you do it, to do it. You need somebody to do it in your place. And he's pointing to that. This imperfect sacrifice year after year after year is pointing to the perfect sacrifice. The one promised in Genesis 3. The seed of the woman that is to come, that will live the perfect life, that will live up to the perfect standard of God, will die a death he did not deserve. And raise again because of that. So all of that is pointing Israel forward. And again, the very beginnings of that we see right here as Moses is telling us about making the garments to cover the shame that they noted that they had as soon as they had eaten. Their last few verses, 22 through 24, the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the tree of life. Adam and Eve chose disobedience, willfully disobeyed. They forfeited their access to the tree of life. They forfeited their access to God's good garden, and God expelled them. Sent out to work the ground as part of God's judgment for their sin for the rest of their days. God placed a cherubim to guard the entrance to the garden. These cherubim, these are, these are angels that do the work of the Lord. We'll see them later when you get into Exodus. They are sitting atop the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. Cherubim there. Cherubim are built into the, 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 the furniture and the core of the tabernacle first and then the temple, showing this very thing. Adam, you were to tend the garden and care for it. Now you're being prevented from entering. It's being guarded from you 
because you've forfeited your access because of your sin. As you get to the next chapter, Cain and Abel, we know the story, Cain kills Abel. It goes through after that, Seth is born, again, a measure of grace from God to Adam and Eve. It goes then to explain some of Cain's lineage. And quickly, 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 you see how sin is pervasive. We see disease, we see death, we see drunkenness, we see murder. We were in a, a Bible study in our church recently, and, and it was talking about um, mentioning Genesis. And the teacher kept pointing back to the fact that sin deepens and widens. It doesn't stay. Inside of two chapters after this, we go from the sin of eating a fruit that they were commanded not to eat, to killing their brother, to killing people just because you looked at them wrong. That's in the lineage of Cain. Continue on and you get to the point where there is the lineage from Adam to Moses. And there's a refrain after every person. It's the same thing. It'll give a name, who their child was, how many years they lived, and then at the end of it, and they died. And they died. And they died. Sin deepens and widens. Sin brings death. Yes, it brings all those other things. Disease, hardship, toil, pain, fear, shame. But ultimately it brings death. As I was preparing this week, I had several commentaries that I referred to. And, and one of them I thought summed up all of these verses so well that I certainly would be futile to try to improve on it. So I want to read you this paragraph. And this is from New American Commentary. The, the author is a theologian named K.A. Matthews. And in the commentary on Genesis 1 through 11, the chapters, this is what he says to, to end up chapter 3. Such imagery effectively depicts the excommunication of man and woman from the presence of God. Later, Israel was all too aware that an audience with God was the exclusive privilege of Aaron's lineage. That's the priests. And only at the invitation of God once a year. Our parents, Adam and Eve, squandered what men and women have longed to regain ever since. However, not all is lost. Since God initiates for Israel a new way into his presence, but at the costly price of innocent blood. In spite of man's inability to obtain life through the garden's tree, the tabernacle revealed at Sinai enabled Israel to live with God, though imperfectly. The means and extent of access to God's presence was altered because of sin. But divine mercy overtook the wayward man and woman. For their future generations, provision was afforded through Israel. This all, however, only foreshadowed the perfect and final passage into the presence of God by the very body of Jesus Christ, whose blood cleanses us so that we might know life through his death. John's apocalypse alludes to the garden's tree of life when it speaks of eternal life granted to those who persevere in Christ in Revelation chapter 2. In the new and eternal city of God, the tree of life will perpetually grant its fruit to all those who believe. And listen to this. It is then and only then that Adam and Eve may reach for the fruit and enjoy its abiding nectar. Folks, God's grace is all over the pages of Genesis 3. Even in sin, God is pointing us to the fact that he has a plan. That it's a costly plan. That it's a plan that will require his son the very Son of God, to lay down his life. And that through that, sins can be forgiven and we can have a life that's as durable as all eternity. God's people survive in Genesis 3 because of his loving kindness, because of his mercy, because he intervenes on our behalf. His consistent and constant grace shows up. Even in the immediate aftermath of sin, Willfully disobedient Adam and Eve. Even then, he pursues them. He reaches out to them. He provides for their needs, and he points to future hope. You may be here today and be an unbeliever. Run to Jesus. The things we have read are true. 
the promises of God are true. God offers salvation and forgiveness of sins through the finished work of Christ. He calls us to repent and believe that. I hope you can see through this that as we have pointed back and forth that God's grace is consistent. That his mercy endures forever. That his loving kindness reaches out even through our sin. Paul tells us in Romans that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So if somebody asks, why does God love you? The answer is not because Jesus died for me. That's backwards. Jesus died for me because God loved us. God loved his people. Pray with me, please. Father, as we read this, judgment on our first parents because of willful disobedience sin. Lord, we thank you for your grace that is so evident. That it reaches through time and space to even now on a Sunday morning thousands of years after this. And even while we are sinners, you love us. You have made a way for us to be forgiven and for our relationship with you to be reconciled and restored. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your perfect plan. We thank you for all those things happening in the fullness of time along your timetable so that we can have a restored relationship. We can have our sins forgiven. Lord, all for your glory and our good. We are thankful to you. We ask now, as we leave this place, that you would change us by the reading of your word, by the praying of your word, by the singing of your word. Lord, that we would recognize our need for Christ. Whether we have been a Christian for 50 years or we need to call out to him for the first time for salvation. Either way, Lord, we need Jesus. Lord, we'll thank you for all you'll do with this pray that you would be praised and glorified through the rest of this service and through our leaving that we would honor you and glorify you with our week and with our lives in christ's name amen